Hello and welcome to another episode of Northwestify, the podcast around technology and business in the Northwest. Today we have a um, we have a couple of people on the show. We have Howard Sims, the co-founder, um, and Marcus Hadfield, the chief strategy officer at Apadme. So Apadme is a pretty big name in the in the region. I've certainly heard of him. I know a lot of people have. So welcome both of you onto the podcast. Marcus, do you mind if I start with you? Uh, and tell us a little bit about maybe well, tell us a bit about a Padme. Tell us what give us your elevator pitch what the Padme is for anyone who doesn't know who's been living under a rock, and then uh, a little bit about what a chief strategy officer does. All right, the first bit's easy. Um, <laughs> a Padme are our first technical agency, uh, so there are 190 of us. We are based in nearly all of us are based in Media City in Salford Keys in the Anchorage, Anchorage 2, for those of you who know it. And why I say nearly all of us is because in the last year, we've taken the opportunity to bring in probably four or five employees who probably wouldn't join a Manchester business. We'll probably come on to that later um, because of the change of the pandemic. Uh, uh, historically, uh, Padme were famous for the apps that we built. We're a 12-year-old company. The first founding client was the BBC. Uh, and one of the projects that we're really pleased and proud that we worked on and delivered with the BBC is the iPlayer Music app, uh, amongst others. We also, in the last 10, 12 years, have worked on big, complex mobile apps for the NHS, for Argos, for um, the co-op. And more recently, then, we can talk about the stuff that we're doing with Chelsea Digital Ventures and with Domino's Pizza. So uh, a broad scale. And why I say we, we were famous for the apps, but now we're mobile first, is I think our definition of mobile has grown over those 12 years. And now it really is about those full complex systems. And we think very much more with mobile users or customers in mind rather than where we started, which was mobile screens and, and mobile phones, really. Brilliant. And um, to what, what's your role there? What, what does a strategy officer strategize on a daily basis? So my, my role in the sort of loosest of terms is to work out why we're doing the things that we're doing. So really starting at the beginning of any engagement with a client to, to boil down what are those big objectives? So why have you come here? And ultimately, what does good look like? So I always sort of say and probably truthfully I'm the least technical person in the room um, but I'm very much obsessed with what are those metrics of success. Uh, we're technology agnostic uh, pardon me we don't start with a particular solution in mind and I think that's that's very liberating so it's my job to tease out of our clients what does good look like and then with the product team everybody else start to shape the solution then as you move deeper into it with, with obviously with the technical team and, and the, the UI team you know, getting further and further into the detail. That's probably when I when I pull out. The other important part, though, of course, is at the minute any product goes live, you know, obsessing over the data, the performance of it, and getting into that iterative improvement cycle. Yeah. So you're setting KPIs and things like that. Is that is that something you would do with a client, sort of around effectiveness of products, or or do you yeah. do it? Yeah, cool. So Howard, let me come on to you, um, co-founder of the business. It's been, we've heard it's been going for, did you say 12 years? What's, what was the spark that sparked a Padme? Well, we benefited, unfortunately, from the demise of a previous company. The four founders of a Padme had worked together for nine or 10 years in the mobile industry. And this is when Symbian used to dominate the world. Do you remember the, the Nokias and the Panasonic? Yeah, yeah. 
And then major change in the world when iOS arrived and Android arrived, that company unfortunately uh, fell away. So we lost our jobs on a Tuesday and we started a pub on the Thursday. And it's 12 years, it's been 12 years now since the four of us sat there and looked at each other and worked out what we we're going to do. <laughs> Was that um, the last day of holiday you had? I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's been an amazing 12 years. It's been absolutely fantastic. Not just because, you know, of Apadme's growth, but also looking at mobile technology and the way it's transformed the world. And, you know, it's nice to think you're right in there, right at the start, way before iPhone, and then you see where we are today, and it's just incredible. Yeah, really good. And so, I mean, what about the tech scene in Manchester? Do you think there's something specifically around the region? You, you know, uh, you were saying that, Marcus, that pretty much everyone's on site, right, until recently, and we maybe want to talk about that. It's a lot of developers and technicians and product owners and scrum masters in one place. You know, technology is pretty famous for being remote and, you know, people dialing in and all that, but you, you certainly up to now have been on-premises in Manchester. I guess our question really is for Howard, like what was, was that always the plan, state, you know, fully collocated teams? Yeah, I mean, two of us are born and bred in Manchester. The affinity to the place, you know, it's second to none. We, we love seeing how Manchester's grown over the, all these years. I particularly liked it a few years ago when Andy Burnham turned up and he did his, his summit event. And he, made, he I like a stake in the ground. He says, basically, we're going to be top five in Europe for, for technology, for digital. I like that. And we already had the foundations there to make that so. But it feels like we've just kicked on. Manchester, for some reason, strategically or not we're growing uh, this digital presence this awareness we are literally saying we are one of the best cities in the in, in europe alone for digital and it's proven itself out you look at the brands that have gravitated towards manchester it's incredible with bbc turning up many years ago seemed to have been the catalyst for so many other brands saying well if the bbc are going there then why don't we go there mm. and it's just been fantastic, the growth that you see. Uh, and especially given that digital, if you're thinking about the future and jobs and um, what would and a UK policy of, of where would you want to grow, digital is a great, the right place to be. So the fact that Manchester positioned itself as being a leading digital city and it's proving itself to, to grow along those lines, it's going in the right direction. It's really fantastic. And then the other thing is like you, you people come to Manchester now who've never possibly visited before you get the same response manchester's ace i didn't realize how cool manchester was you, not only like um the jobs these days but also the nightlife well normally the nightlife and the bar everything so manchester's as a lad who's grown up in manchester and i used to kind of be fearful of going to the city center for some reason because it was just scary now you know it's just a different place if you ask me i just think it's a different city it's just got so much going for it so um, no, there's never been any idea of moving, moving the, the business away from Manchester. It's just always been a great place to grow. And I'm the same, Howard, you know, and we've talked about on this show a few times, I'm Manchester born and bred as well. And it's like, you, you can't quite believe what's happened to the city from like pet shops and pawn shops and Tib Street to, to where we are today, you know, like sort of. Salford Keys, or sorry, that's not Manchester, is it? Salford Keys, but you know, ultimately, all these buildings, all these things that have grown up around us, you know, if you've been born and brought up here, you can't quite believe what the landscape looks like and how it's changed. And I've sort of said, 
because I'm, I'm totally with you on the BBC piece and so many other businesses have, have arrived here off the back of that, from the Moon Pigs to the Raytheons to the Bet365s, et cetera, et cetera, massive organisations from London. But I think that the, the big pull that I saw on one of the big winning ticket factors that Manchester had over the rest of the North is the airport and accessibility. And I think that really has allowed us to flourish in the way that we've flourished. And what's interesting is that whilst that is happening, there's still quite an all inherent businesses. Like if you look at the boohoos and the pretty little things and the misguides and, the, you know, the rag trade still is around, but in a very different, in a technical, in a technology format, which is, which is fantastic. The question that I've got to, to the floor really is, you guys, 12 years in the tech scene in Manchester, you know, we're about to speak to Code in the next couple of days, Code Computer Love, which I'm sure you know, you know, they've been around for a long time. What do you think's changed from a tech perspective in the city? What differences, I suppose, was it, I mean, obviously I'll pinpoint talent. Was it easy to find talent before? Was it not? What's changed? What can you see has been the massive, massive changes um, yeah, I mean, if, just take the talent, the talent point alone. And we started a Padme and we were building the, um, in, the operational team or the, the developer side of things. I was very obsessive about finding very, very good people. And it was difficult to find good people, but at the same time, you could find them. You, you wind forward to present day and it feels like you've got a lot of big companies all pulling for the same talent. So that's one thing you then start to think about strategies regarding recruitment so one would be can you now have a number of employees that are not based in manchester that might be one question you ask yourself as a business probably you would say more experienced people might fit the bill so we've got a, a, you know a handful of people who are not based in manchester they're very experienced and in terms of the work that they do it's exceptional so you start to think about these kind of things then you start to think about what does manchester need it needs an army of young, hungry developers, digital designers, testers, project managers, product owners. We need a whole army of these guys coming through the schooling system who are looking at a digital career and thinking, actually, a digital career is brilliant. Because if you know if you know that stuff when you're at school, you get excited about it. You don't know that. But like, um, if you go into the schools and you say, have you thought about a, a career in digital? And you excite them with how good a digital career can be because it is it's interesting stuff. It's never boring. Then you potentially get the uh, the army that you want. So Manchester needs to be doing all this kind of stuff. Do you think um, it's because it's a really interesting question this for me because I've been to your office and it's, it's, it's so cool by the way. Anyone that's not been to Paddy's office is really really cool. What they've done is amazing. And what I'd say is a lot of money has been spent on on certain people's offices and they've made it like this fantastic place. Certainly, a Padme is a really really cool place to go to work in. Do you think? potentially even as we come out of the pandemic where people are working more remotely or like you mentioned, even now people are working remotely. Do you think you lose the essence of the team and the environment within because people are remote? Because I know personally when we set an office in a different business many, many years ago in London, uh, the main office was in Manchester and our London office always felt like they were the second rate citizens. They were always getting the information afterwards. You weren't able to all go for a beer together and stuff like that. Do you think that will have an impact on staffing, morale, environment, etc.? Or do you think just the fact that it's remote, it offsets it in the fact that you can get skills and you can just do it remotely? Does that make sense? 
Yeah, I'll give my 2p and then Howard will give his. I mean, I think we, we've talked about this in our board meetings in the last couple of weeks. And it, it's a hot topic. You know, what do we think the next 12 months looks like? And we are pretty much, we haven't nailed every single detail down, but I think we are fully expecting it's going to be flexible going forward to really make the most of both of those things. One, give people that flexibility and that remote working that they've enjoyed and the productivity that that brings, but also ensure that we do get people back in for enough time to build the team, to maintain the culture. And, and I think it's most profound with um, either new starters or new graduates. So I think it's quite easy if you're a little bit older and you've worked in the company for a long time to, to have those shorthand conversations, to make the effort to go and meet Howard for a beer or, or whatever. But I think if you're starting your career or you're joining a new company, it's really hard to get that culture across, which is probably why you had the second office experience that you had. And then I think there's, a, there's another part to that, which is collaboration and working together as a team. Again, I think you do lose some of that intangible magic. As brilliant as Miro is and as Zoom is and all the fantastic collaboration tools we've got, I think there's, we think there's definitely a role for a certain amount of together activity. So having, I think it's pretty the cliche almost already, but recasting the office as a headquarters rather than a nine to five feels like mm. where our heads are at. Would you add anything to that, Howard? Yeah, definitely. I think um, same with you. The tools are fantastic for a remote work, but at the same time, you do miss something. That team ethic. I mean, I love teams, playing football, doing whatever you want in teams. There's something about people being together in an environment and the camaraderie that generates, not just for projects, but for company culture and things like that. What I've liked over all the years with the Padme is that you see it tends to be younger uh, people join the company. They find out who's their like for like kind of people. And you see these pockets of friendships creating. And then over the years, you've got different levels of friendships who are like, you've got the guys now nearly 30, you've got the guys 25, you've got the guys coming from university. And the difficulty at the moment is the ones that have come from fairly recent times from university, they're joining a company where we're all remote. So they're not getting the chance to meet their equivalents around the office and just talk about the things that they talk about, whatever's relevant to them, and then go to the pub after work on a Friday and, and solidify these friendships. So they're missing something at the moment, which is a shame. You see some of the young lads in the office. It strikes me they're always wanting to find someone to talk to because they, they miss something. So I, I like that. I like the, the friendships that get formed as a byproduct of being a pretty decent company with really good people inside. You get a wonderful culture. So the fact that we can't get together, can't have a, a beer together, can't go out together. We've always had amazing company dues and we, we're just not getting time to do them at the moment. Yeah, I think every everything I've heard and everyone we've spoken to is, is pretty much on the same wavelength that we don't want to get rid of the office. You know, there's a place for it, um, but we're not going back in five days a week. But that's pretty, and everyone is, I, I, I have not yet spoken to anyone who's, I have seen, you know, you can see people advertising and say, oh, we're just remote during COVID. Uh, you know, it's just fully back to normal afterwards. You're not going to be the employer of choice if that's your, if that's your strategy, you, you know, to move with the times, the times have moved very quickly relatively speaking the shift to remote has it was going like that and it's just peak it's just gone crazy 
I reinforce that completely. You know, you see those camaraderies, those relationships built that unfortunately you're missing. But I think also, you know, as you as you know yourself, from an ownership perspective and, and a knowledge perspective, more importantly for people coming through, there's there's no. I mean, it's great having the banter in the office, isn't it? It's absolutely brilliant. But there's also the bit where you hear something, somebody says something, and you've got so much knowledge about that business, you can sort of help and advise and support and and tell them about that company that they've never. Heard heard of before but they've just read it and they've mentioned it to the colleague that's the bit that I find really really challenging at the moment where you know like you say with new people I think you both alluded to the new people scenario but even with existing you know experienced people that you bring into the business they might have a lot of experience but there's no greater value than understanding the business and everything that's gone on over the years that maybe you've talked to that client or you want to pass some information on and stuff like that and before we move on to the next question, though, I just want are you a red or a blue, Howard? Red. Oh, cheers. <laughs> I, was I was literally just about to say I have been totally missold this podcast because I was told we'd be talking about the Beatles and football and I could sit back and listen to some Zach doing the talking. Well, for that was going to be my next question. So, Howard, what do, we, what do we think about Ollie? Go on then, off you go. <laughs> well, obviously, we, we love Ollie, don't we? Everyone loves Ollie. It's hard not to like them. He's the nicest guy, it seems, in football to me, which is not necessarily the best trait of a football manager. But I think he, something's happening. He's got a philosophy. Something's happening. We're playing better. So you give him a bit more time, in my view. You, you let him, you let see where he gets to. I, I would love to see the guy be successful, just because not just because of the heritage, but I think he's likeable. And, and I like, it's the same for Klopp as well. Unfortunately, Jurgen Klopp is a very likeable man. So I like watching him. And I, I'm on mute here. I can't <laughs> hear you. <laughs> <laughs> I just like watching him. So like, when he's got a team playing as way, the, way, the way that Liverpool can play, not right now, but the way that they can play, you're warm to him. So I'm like, I would like a manager that's like that. And I, like, I think Oli represents good, positive qualities. I'd just like to see a man like that be successful. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. I completely get it because, he, you know, he's, he's everyone's hero, wasn't he? Because most of us, well, the majority of us weren't really alive when United previously in the, in the 60s won the European Cup. So it was our, our thing, wasn't it? You know, who put the goal in the German's net. So he was our hero, wasn't he? Um, so, so, yeah, it'd be lovely to see him. It, for me, he just needs to get that little bit of ruthlessness, doesn't it? Yeah, I don't know if he's got that in his back pocket, to be honest no. with you. So in, in relation to your, your products and what you guys do across there, um, you talked about the, the previous business that you had and the four friends that had got together and it was like, that's gone down and now we're going to do something new. What is it that's super exciting about you guys, what you guys do? What is it that, that make people, you know, why the BBC working with you, why the NHS working with you? What, what is it that, what makes you different and, and what sort of cool tech are you doing now? Where are you sort of moving to with it? Do you want to have a go on that, Marcus? Oh, you'll talk the football ones, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think the first and foremost thing is, how I didn't really say is that even though the previous company came to an end, there were eight years of building mobile solutions before that. And that was before there was an app store or anything else. So um, I think the, the number one overarching reason why people come to us and we win and keep businesses is that deep, deep mobile experience. And some of the team especially the senior tech team have been with the business for, you know, nearly 10 years, some of them since it was founded. So there's a huge amount of 
just market leading experience of how to solve quite complex Chewy solutions. The second part is, um, I always say it's the least, it's not, not so sexy part, but I'm sure some of our team would not like the way that I speak about that, but it's the ability to integrate. You see the front end and the, and the shiny solutions that win awards, but actually the bit where we, we stand out from our peers is the ability to integrate with the complex systems that our clients have got. So, you know, the NHS, as you can imagine, has got a lot of legacy systems and is incredibly data secure and sensitive. So building the front end solution is, is not, not, not the easy bit. It's actually the, the second half and being able to do all of that under one roof is probably what sets us apart. In terms of what excites us, um, we've got a sign in the office when we moved to the new office, you might've seen it, Zach, and um, it's all neon and it's in our wonderful breakout area that's sadly uh, not seen many breakouts for a bit. But it's a, it says keep an open mind. And I think that's really, really important because the reason that previous company didn't isn't still going is because it pegged itself to a solution or um, to a, a technology that's no longer around, uh, Symbian. You know, if we only pegged ourselves to the solutions that we're brilliant at, we wouldn't be going very far. Uh, so we're all we're constantly looking at the new. So we're looking at, you know, what are the um, the new mobile platforms that are coming out? what are the voice expectations of the market connected devices and the ability to connect devices to mobile interfaces that feels like quite a big area for us at the moment and i think the other bit that's growing and growing is the data side of things it feels like you know people are are only really waking up to in my opinion to the sort of the turbo power of mobile relationships with their clients and customers the apps used to be very much a utility thing We'll do an app, it'll make lives easier for us and for our customers. But now I think my one of my sort of personal stances is that this is very much a powerful relationship channel with your customers. Uh, and then the, so all of the data and everything that sits around that is is, is a growing area for us. That's, yeah, it's really cool. I mean, so one thing I do want to ask you about, and that maybe it's a bit of a difficult subject, but do you ever get a client and you think, I wish I wasn't working with them or... Maybe, maybe it's not quite as um, overt as that. Maybe it's, it's starting to look a bit like a vanity project. We need an app in the app store. Why do you need an app in the app store? We just do. What happens in those, those kind of briefings and, and those kind of conversations where it's, it's always good to win business, but at the same time, at what, you, know, you don't want to do it at the cost of wasting their time and money as well. Yeah, I mean, we're pretty, we're pretty upfront about that. I mean, our relationships with most of our clients are long-term. Mm. Uh, two reasons number one it's really profitable you know it's a lot easier to keep and grow business than continually win it so we're about you know demonstrate if, if you can demonstrate the solution has a positive impact on a the business then then it, then the next year's budget will come and come and come we have had situations where you're in the certainly initial kickoff meeting i'm gonna get uh, i'm not gonna mention this client by name because we still know them but there was an early meeting where one of the it was an app that we were, they were looking to build and it wasn't in a particularly highly engaging category. And they were one, they were in this initial say they were, they were wanting to put uh, Sudoku and crosswords into, into this app in a, in a pretty low engagement category. So we quickly talked them out of that. So we will front up, you know, not just is the solution not right, but are the things that you want to put in it going to waste your money? I don't think we've had many instances where, 
we've um, we've actually said no. This is just an absolute waste of time. I think that gets filtered out before it gets to us because you know you, we'll help them build the business case and write the business case. I think we've had instances where people have come thinking the solution was a lot more complicated than it was, and we've okay. so we were. And we've said, actually, there is an easier way to do this. So perhaps in the short term, talk ourselves out of the initial yeah. big fee. But, you know, that, that it's not a smash and grab way of working. You know, we, we want that long term relationship. So get going with something that's going to work and, and the bigger prizes follow. And just on that note, I find it, again, going back to how things have changed. You know, OK, we've talked about the Northwest quite a lot. Do you think that globalisation has changed do you think that we're now you know so 12 years ago when you started you might have started with a lot of uk-based clients initially but then you've expanded and gone further or further afield do you think what's happened in the past couple of years has made us come back to the uk or do you think that still remains a, a, a huge market for you or you're still predominantly uk-based does that make sense by what's happened in the last couple of years well, with Brexit changes, is yeah, yeah. I'm not. I don't want to be. I don't want to bring up the B word, to be honest with you. But, but it's like talking about Liverpool. <laughs> it's not too heavily because most of most of our clients are UK based. Not all, um, but most are. The work that we're doing with uh, the football club, which is Chelsea. I mean, that's that's global. The work that we're doing with them, their audiences. Uh, the work we've done with Sale GP is global, but they're still both UK based or mainly UK based clients. I think the only impact of um, Brexit has been some of the questions it throws up around data. So we're working with a client in the Republic of Ireland at the moment, and you know, there's, suddenly there's there's new data considerations, and so we're we're pitching to so we're pitching to a big European wide client, and again, data now is a bigger deal because of Brexit and the and the changes of that. So let's let's talk about Zach's favorite subject, recruitment. Okay, it's not your favorite subject, Zach. It's one. It's probably <laughs> his second favorite after United, right? <laughs> um, so what? Let me just talk about that for a minute. Like, what is it that you look for? You talk. You said about um, looking for you know really skilled people, and you know there's a big demand for for that skill. I guess how do you assess it? How do you know someone is as good as they say they are? Um, and how do you attract them? Like, what do you you know? Breakout areas are nice, but we know that is not equal culture. People want lots of different things, depending on, I guess, where they are in their career and their life. So, yeah, for, first things first is like, how do you find those good people? Obviously, using Chrome or recruitment TM, uh, but how else? You know, what, what's what's the attraction? Yeah, one of the um, one of the big attractions is ultimately pretty much everyone has to go to work, and because you've got to go to work, you want to be doing something that's fun and interesting. The fact that we work on really cool technology with really cool clients and you can get to create a football training app for a major global football brand or a pizza delivery solution. You know, it's like you're in the pub and someone says to you, what do you do for a living? You get your phone out and you just show them an app, don't you? You're like, that's what I do. There's, there's cool points attached to the, the work that we do. So that means that like if you're, if you're young and talented and you, you, you know, want to get into what we do, the variety of projects that we have, there's always a new challenge. So it's like you're on football related stuff for, for nine months, then you're on sailing related stuff for nine months, and then you're on, might be NHS related stuff for, for nine months. So there's this broad mix of cool projects that come through that make it really interesting. So you're not, you're not bored. I remember working in a record shop and that should be my ideal job to be fair. But when you stood there waiting for someone to come along and talk to you about Neil Young or Led Zeppelin, and it never happens. 
So it's like uh, you're bored, you're bored out of your mind just looking at the clock. But if you work in technology on cool projects, you're just amazing how the time just shoots by and you go, how, how did I get to the end of the day? I was, you know, I was so engrossed in what I'm doing, so enjoying what I was doing that I just literally didn't see the time passing. So I think a massive part of it is the work that we do. Um, and in terms of the kind of people that we've, it's one thing that we want technically gifted people, which might mean that, you know, it's bright people that can understand and code and design and stuff like that. A massive part of it for me over all these years was attitude. It's someone who's proactive and positive and a can-do kind of a style about them. You know, the amount of times I've probably said no in interviews and it's been on attitude rather than on aptitude, say, or skills, would be because of, you want, my, my point was like, given you're one of the founders, you want to work with people you like. So it's talented people with a really positive can-do attitude that you'd happily go and have a drink in the pub with. So this, if you get a lot of those people in one place, you get this, you get this amazing culture. So it's like attitude as much as um, skills. And what about, I mean, it's a difficult one, isn't it? But trying to, we know our industry uh, suffers from a lack of diversity. How are you challenging that? Well, the nice thing I think about watching that company develop is watching diversity come into the company, say. So if you'd have wound, wound back to the early days, there was a lot, a lot of white men there. You uh, you wind forward to today, and it's a, it's it, we've got I don't know, representative of all kinds of diversity in the company, which is really nice. We've also got now a diversity team who are focused on diversity matters. So um, it's brilliant to see the evolution of things. But years ago, perhaps to females, tech wasn't as attractive as it is now. It's become a little bit more open, a little bit more um, accessible, for want of a term. And so you, you start to see more diversification coming through into the company, which is brilliant. It's all good. Yeah. I also, I also to add on that, I think, I think scale and growth helps. Because when, as we've grown, we just have more people in more roles. So, you know, and when you walk into our office now, it because we've got, I don't know, how many, 100 engineers or varying types, 100 people on the, you know, there's not just one or two diverse groups represented. We must have 20, 30 female developers and, and testers and everything else. It's a big, it's a big, mixed group of people so when people come in for interview they see that and i think that helps so we we certainly had feedback i've had feedback from from other friends who are, who are trying to improve the diversity of their organization but it's hard when you're starting when people come into interview and they just see a load of blokes in the corner coding you know it, it, and we're fortunate now that we're at a scale that because we've already got the diversity i think it makes it easier to to build upon that Good. And, and, uh, and, you know, personally, as a co-founder, business owner myself, I, I'm with you totally on, on, on the attitude piece. You know, it's really, really important for me. You know, you can always teach and train people, but if they've not got the right attitude, ultimately, you're never going to get them to where they want to get to. So I get that from my own business. However, in the job that I do, it becomes really, really difficult at times because I can be speaking to a candidate who's got an amazing attitude, but then I send a code test to them and then I send it to you guys and you guys go, mm. No good. <laughs> so, so it's really interesting to see it from sort of two different angles. Personally, obviously, it's different. Obviously, we're not we're not doing tech, but you know, I always look at you know, have they got the right attitude? If they've got the right attitude, can I train them? Can I develop them? Can I get them there? 
Whereas when I'm actually recruiting, certainly at certain levels and, you know, we've talked about the, the, the challenges in, in getting really, really good people. And I think one of the things that's also happened, and this is no disrespect to anybody, but as the large businesses from London who've saved themselves considerable amounts of money, like the BBC and, and Moonpig and all these other people by shifting their operations from London to Manchester, that's also put the wage salaries out of kilter because ultimately if you're going to save 100 million pounds because you're shutting your operation in london and you're bringing it to manchester then you're going to be able to spend more money on developers so you know so it just becomes quite challenging in the respect that i can find people with great attitudes all the time as part of my qualification but i never know how good they are until the minute they come back and you know i mean we've worked together howard and the minute you turned around and said yeah that particular individual's co-test was absolutely spot on let me have a chat now you know and I knew from an attitude perspective for me that should be a good one but ultimately I never know until I deliver the task back to you if that makes sense so yeah, yeah. Well, you can always tell if an interview is going well and I'm involved because I stop asking technical questions and start asking them about which is the best of the Rocky films so. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, if they get that wrong then they're out <laughs> I think that's fair. <laughs> I'm not applying for a job, don't worry. <laughs> so uh, going back to, you, you know, you talked about we need this this army of people to come into the digital sector in you. Um, how are we building that pipeline? You know, is, is there enough being done with schools, you know, with the curriculum? Uh, I've got a son who's doing GCSE computing, uh, not because I made him, right? Just because he wants to, um, I promise. And... Uh, that is not a massively relevant curriculum, I'll be honest. I've seen it, I've helped the wife said, why don't help him get, you know, study for it? I've had a look and I'm like, what is this? This is not what I do. I don't know the answer to these questions because this stuff isn't relevant. Um, so there's that. And there's also, I think, you know, the positive role models that we've talked about and that you said that, you know, have had me an hour, have, getting those people in front of school children, showing them how exciting the roles are, often regular early so well, i guess what's happened with that maybe howard what do you, what do you well, there's a couple of good things like when my daughter came home from school age what five or six and said i'm going to be going doing coding i was really impressed because i'm thinking that well the government has stipulated that in some way that coding is so important to the uk that we're going to teach the kids it so that's that's the brilliant that's the positive side of it you then like allow the children to learn all the way through and you ask them now when they're like 13, 14 years old, what about computer science? Well, I could, like the board and they're bored because it's not, they're not, like, they're not being, in my view, not being presented to them in a cool way. So if you want to engage a kid, you take, so we had this program and I thought it was quite, quite cool, but it never got any backing to be honest. We created this program called App in a Day. We went into, it was Nutsford Academy and we took the kids off the curriculum. We gave them iPads and iPhones, set them up with their MacBooks to develop we assume they had no knowledge. We told them coding basics, app basics. And then at the end of the day, they were creating their own music player app and they're all playing tunes, right? And the kids were buzzing from it. The teachers thought it was brilliant and we loved presenting it. Yeah. So that plants the seed. Um, the brilliant thing about that as well was that the girls loved it even more than the guys did. So that plants the seed that, oh my God, this is cool. This is great. I could do this for a living. Yeah, you can. And there's loads of jobs in it as well. So... It didn't get adopted. You want something like that somehow infiltrate into the schools because the teachers teaching it, have they been developers? Probably not. Can they teach it in an engaging, exciting manner? Might be difficult for them. 
So how do you instill, if it's so important to the nation that we're all, an, you know, there is a, a plethora of people coming through with digital skills, then find a way to go into the schools and make it exciting for the kids and generate some excitement back so that they go, oh, I've just, I'm going to be an app developer or whatever. I'm going to be a web developer. I'm going to be a digital designer. Because if you do that, you're just planting the seed with the kids. So if they're saying, actually, it's a really good job. But in the absence of doing that, they think coding's boring. I agree entirely. And I've seen it. You know, one of the businesses that I was involved with before Chroma was uh, um, an engineering business. And it was exactly the same thing. You know, it, engineering had this badge of, you know, you're a mechanic. You know, you're Kevin Webster from Coronation Street. It's not cool. However, actually, it's really cool. It's really cutting edge. Some of the stuff that people are doing in engineering is unbelievable. From several years ago, you know, even probably now, arguably with cars and stuff like that, mm. to airplanes and all that type of stuff. But they still had the same challenges. You know, Rolls-Royce were doing like massive, massive um programs to get into schools and educate people on why it was so cool and you know it is it is fascinating that even still today it's not perceived as cool you know however every single day of our lives including people that are sort of my age I'm 47 I don't know how old you guys are but you know we've moved into it really haven't we all of a sudden we don't put our phones down you know you talk to your wife for a couple of minutes a night because you're too busy messing on your phone because you're catching up with what's been going on during the day and stuff like that so even though it's at hand and all the kids are using them every single day they probably still don't know what goes into it but in addition to that and the one question I've got just to back that up. That's one part to it about making it cool for kids at school. The second part to it though is, can we actually, because technology moves so quick, you know, even on this show when we first started doing it, I remember us talking about PHP a couple of years ago and then JavaScript was where it was at, you know, and so on. Technology moves so fast. Do you think we'll ever be able to have enough of a workforce to catch up with the speed of technology? Because we just can't train people quick enough. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Yeah, it's a good, good point. A very good point, because we have to move quickly all the time. The difficulty yeah, is like you're always trying to update those skills. So how can you expect the teachers to constantly keep updating their skills? I think I'd be running programs with with the with companies like ours, with Google, with Microsoft, with many others, whereby you're getting a slice of their talented workforce to drop into schools periodically. Don't know quite how you do it at, at national level. But, you, you know, some of these brands are so cool. You get someone from Apple to drop in one day to, to a, a school, then the kids are going to sit up because they adore mobile phones yeah. and iPads and stuff. So it's a difficult one because it is constantly evolving. It's just, I, I just think you've got to somehow plant a seed of excitement of the, the kind of things you can make. And then make, and the projects as well. Another thing that helps it as well is that entrepreneurial world around technology. So the Zuckerbergs and the Jeff Bezoses of this world they're the shining lights in terms of uh, growth and success. But at the same time, it does plant a seed in the young mind as if to say, if you have the right idea in technology, you can take a business to market very, very quickly and you can be very successful. And I've seen, what I've seen in schools, because I've, I've, I've acted as a business angel twice at my children's schools, and they run this program, entrepreneurial program for about several months where they get the kids to create a business pitch it and then actually create products and then sell those products on an entrepreneurial day and that is amazing you see the, the key see the kids get excited about that that is stunning so more, more of that yeah i did it as well uh howard and i thought it was absolutely brilliant you know the way that they sort of it was like groups of kids that came in and pitched their idea and 
the time and effort that they went into to pitch it was absolutely you, know, you almost didn't want to knock any of them <laughs> at all because you could see how passionate they were about it which is again amazing i've got two more questions john so i don't know if you want to i've got i'll have a quick one and right. it's um yeah i kind of want to fire it to marcus so i want to come back to the well what we we're talking about making it exciting for kids and then the curriculum and like is school stroke a, a computer science curriculum the wrong vehicle all together to get people interested in digital you know i mean obviously it needs to be there and for those who are interested in it if you're a full-on developer and you know you are from the day you were born that's absolutely fine but in talk, talking about getting people excited about a digital career is it better to do a little and often one day like you, you know you said you said Howard, is that a better way of doing it and to leave them wanting more you know just walk away it might be um i mean my, my view is don't assume the digital careers are all about coding careers. I think is is a massive part of part of it, and I think history tells us that some of the let's say more laborious, heavy lifting coding jobs will disappear. You know, you you look even in our world at the moment. There's there's a lot of talk around low code now. Low code at the moment isn't you know isn't good enough bespoke solutions, but it's a fair bet that in 20 years time it will be. So there's. There's always going to be new jobs, I think, um, and, and perhaps some of the demands that people are being taught already will be out of date in four or five years, as, as you've already alluded to. But I think some of those other digital careers very lean very heavily into psychology. I think, you know, if you look at user experience, the behavioural science, the reason why people do things, tons of tons of growth there. I think there used to be like one one UX role and it was UX and UI all wrapped up together. Now it's about four already. You know, you could be a researcher, a strategist, a designer and, and something else. So I think my, my guess is that there will be a growth of almost a non-code coding based digital careers, as well as a growth of the coding ones. Uh, to your point, then, should it be one day a week? Oh, I was thinking one, one day a term, like just make them, just get them really excited. And I said, and then don't give them any more. Don't be doing it. Don't, don't kill the joy, really. So I'm getting it. Yeah, that's an interesting, I think maybe somewhere in the middle. Mm. I mean, I remember learning German at school. I didn't enjoy it. I learned it by memory and I gave it up as soon as I could. You don't want it to be like that. Yeah. Equally, if you can, ex if, if there's a way of making it exciting. Maybe maybe there's another, another thought, which is that you build digital into the syllabus of other subjects. So when you're, so perhaps... Some of the other subjects that you do, you make digital a component of those. So maybe, you know, when I was at school, I did biology and I was on the shoreline doing quadrats and counting whelks and stuff. And then you go and you draw a graph and it's all on graph paper. Maybe there's a way to to bring digital into some of those other subjects and weave it into the curriculum. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. Zach, go ahead. OK, man. before we, before we wrap it up, right, a bit of fun. I've never asked you this, John. I've known you for five years. So... Stone Roses or, a, or, or Oasis, John? Well, I'm not saying it's the better music, but um, the, the time I got into it, it was definitely Oasis for me. But Howard? I, I know musically I might be off kilter. If we're doing one, if we're doing one album, oh no, actually, no, I'm going to argue against myself now. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I love the Stone Roses, but 
Oasis just produced more material, and the, definitely Maybes is incredible. And what's her story, Martin? Yeah, and I'm all right. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go for it. No shit. No, I can't. Answer. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Tune in. Tune next <laughs> podcast to find out <laughs> if Howard could choose. Howard, right, I'll go. I'm gonna go Stone Roses. Yeah. Okay, uh, Marcus. I'm for, I'm 49, so I and grew up around here as well. So I'm very lucky. So I went to loads of the Stone Roses gigs. I went to the International too. Went to Blackpool. Went to see them in Paris on a coach. Went to Spike Island, which wasn't very good, no, no matter what anyone tells you. So for me, they're the sound of my sixth form. And I thought everyone was having that experience. However, I I've, I find it very difficult to listen to now. I think I. I, I get a bit tired of all the retro looking back. There's some amazing new stuff getting to that as well. <laughs> so I, I, I'd, I'd go Stone Roses because it was it was my band when I was 18, and that means a lot. I don't, I, I don't listen to it much now. Right. And then finally, I just got one final question, and that is, um, you mentioned this right at the outset, uh, Howard, and that was that you loved it when Andy Burnham came on board and he said, Manchester being top five in Europe, how close are we? Are we there? Will we get there? I honestly don't know the answer to that question. All, all I know is I've, I enjoy watching Manchester grow. You look at, you drive over Barton Bridge and you look at the skyline now and it isn't the same city and it's growing and it's growing. So something's going on, maybe with the lack of commute, commuting now, perhaps the travel problem becomes less of an issue. So Manchester's not even anywhere near finished, if you ask me. Yeah. And we're part of something, and it's just it's magic to see it to, to see it growing. So I've no idea, I've got no statistics to back up where we're at. No. I just know that it's going in the right direction, and we've got that swagger about us, which is always good. So yeah, keep going. Quality, brilliant, Howard Sidman and Marcus Hadfield. Thank you so much for coming on and listen, and thank you for listening to uh, Northwest Five podcast again. Get in touch with us in the usual places. Thank you. Thank you.